Hello, and welcome to Let's Talk MedTech, the premier podcast for the medical device and diagnostic industry. My name is Omar Ford, and I'm the managing editor of MDDI, an online publication owned by Informa that covers the medical device and diagnostic sector. Well, we're doing something just a bit different for this episode of Let's Talk MedTech. We're changing up the format. We've got a special panel, and I will introduce each member later, but the panel will discuss the fallout from the Elizabeth Holmes trial. Holmes is the ex-CEO and founder of Theranos. Holmes was found guilty in January on three counts of wire fraud and one count of conspiracy to commit wire fraud for lying to investors about the Edison blood test effectiveness. Theranos developed uh, the Edison test to take one simple blood draw and be able to diagnose several diseases from that one blood draw. It was supposed to to replace all the need for for these numerous blood draws. Uh, But as we found out, the test didn't work. And uh, Elizabeth Holmes and and the company lied to investors about the test effectiveness. Holmes was found not guilty on four other counts related to defrauding patients who had used Theranos' blood test. The jury couldn't reach a unanimous verdict on three other counts tied to investor fraud. On our panel to discuss the fallout from the trial, we have David Stein, PhD, the CEO of Babson Diagnostics. David is a healthcare leader who has spent his career building world-class teams to drive disruptive strategies and innovation in medtech and diagnostics. His company, Babson Diagnostics, is bringing medically accurate blood testing to accessible retail locations, empowering people to take charge of their health. The company is reimagining the entire blood testing process to be less invasive and more convenient and more patient-centered. Next on the panel, we have Marissa Fayer. She is a medtech executive, entrepreneur, and philanthropist. She is the CEO and founder of the nonprofit Her Health EQ and president of the advisory firm Fair Consulting LLC. She was also featured on episode 23 of Let's Talk MedTech. Please, if you haven't already, check it out. And last but not least, we have Amanda Peterson, news editor of MDDI and a veteran medtech journalist. I'm not going to say how many years. I don't want to get in any trouble on that front, folks. Amanda also hosts episodes of Let's Talk MedTech. When we were originally envisioning this episode and we were planning, we were thinking about uh, its timing and when it would come out. And we were thinking about uh, doing this episode around the time. This episode of Let's Talk MedTech focused on Elizabeth Holmes. Uh, we thought we would do it around the time she was sentenced, uh, but she hasn't been sentenced yet. And we would discover that she won't be sentenced until September. And we thought, wow, this is way too far out. Um, can't do anything uh, that far out. That would be uh, that's too long of a wait. And will Elizabeth Holmes still be relevant? Will she still be a topic of discussion? Uh, then we were uh, looking around and we saw that uh, Ramesh Balwani, uh, Theranos' former COO, is going to go to trial uh, on fraud charges, too. Uh, and that might be a good tie in. But we were still we still had in the back of our minds, hey, um, is Elizabeth Holmes still going to be a topic of discussion? And 
we were answered right away uh, by, yes, she will be, because we're still hearing about Elizabeth Holmes in MedTech. In fact, last week, uh, Hulu dropped its limited series, The Dropout, starring Amanda Seyfried as Elizabeth Holmes, and it details or chronicles the unbelievable rise and fall of Theranos. Amanda Peterson has uh, written, our Amanda Peterson, uh, MDDI's news editor, has written about, has written a review, uh, as a matter of fact, about the dropout, and you can catch that on mddionline.com. So yes, uh, Elizabeth Holmes is still a topic of discussion. And you're going to find out throughout this episode when you listen to it, you're going to see that we talk about more than just the trial. We talk about the mystique of Elizabeth Holmes. Uh, we also ask the what if questions uh, too uh, regarding uh, her. And we talk about, we give practical advice on how not to end up in a Theranos, I'm doing air quotes, but you can't see me because this is audio, but um, how not to end up in a Theranos-like situation. So um, this is a fantastic episode. Can't wait for you to hear it. Uh, without further ado, let's talk Elizabeth Holmes with our panel. Well, thank you all for coming on to Let's Talk MedTech. And this is just an incredible conversation that we're about to have regarding the Elizabeth Holmes trial and verdict. And we're well over a month removed from that. And I wanted to start off by asking, are we surprised that she was found guilty? And just for a recap, she was found guilty on four of 11 charges, including three counts of, of fraud and one count of conspiring to defraud private investors. Uh, but none of the charges on defrauding patients. I, I want to get uh, your take on this. What did you all think about the verdict? And and did it seem as if this was ever going to end, uh, so to speak? Marissa, I'm wondering if you can take the first question for us. I mean, from my perspective, um, she was guilty. <laughs> and and she actually did much more damage to the industry than she was actually found guilty of. And so I'm just surprised she wasn't found guilty of defrauding patients. Um, but it's so much harder to prove those charges um, than the ones that she was actually feel, found guilty of. And so uh, I also think, you know, I'm surprised she wasn't found guilty on, on more charges. Um, but just my non-legal perspective. Sure, sure. That, that That's interesting that you say that, Marissa. Um, and I know you and I have had uh, conversations about the trial uh, as well, um, you know, offline. We, we've talked a, a little bit about it. Amanda, I want to bring you um, into this conversation now because we've talked about this in the past, too. And, and you've been reporting. You've done a ton of reporting on the trial. Um, did you think that there ever was going to be a time that she was found innocent? When you when you looked at it, and I know it dragged on for a while, and and it took a long time to get to trial. Amanda, what are your thoughts on that? You know, Omar, it's it's interesting that you ask. Um, I was not ultimately surprised by the verdict necessarily. Um, there was a time just watching from the peanut gallery because you know. Um, I watch, I listened to all the podcasts and I followed, uh, you know, the reporters who were there on the ground in San Jose and going to the trial every day. Um, I, I followed them very closely. 
on Twitter and uh, LinkedIn and um, but but I'm not I wasn't there I didn't have boots on the ground um, but there was a time toward the end where the dialogue seemed to go there seemed to be a lot of discussion from again you know those of us just watching from the pe uh, peanut gallery that uh, that maybe the prosecution hadn't presented a strong enough case. Um, but that said, you know, what really surprised me wasn't the verdict, but the defense strategy, uh, particularly her very explosive testimony at the end of the trial um, that, you know, she was uh, she uh, testified that she was raped while she was a student at Stanford and that that played a very significant role in her decision to drop out of the university and start Theranos. And that surprised me because it just seemed awfully dicey for one. Um, again, like Marissa said, I'm not a legal expert either. So I don't know how, how often that defense is used or how successful it is. Um, but then just the drastic change from this, you know, she was the ultimate girl boss and Silicon Valley star entrepreneur that we had come to know over the course of Theranos' history. And now suddenly she's leaning into this damsel in distress persona, um, you know, and so it just seemed um, it kind of gave me a little bit of whiplash because it's like, you know, well, the real Elizabeth Holmes, please stand up. Yeah. Um, and it just didn't work for me. Um, but and, and I, uh, I I'm just going to make one one last uh, point on that and then I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll button it up. But I worry about the broader implications because uh, the Me Too movement is something that I take very seriously. It's very near and dear to my heart. And um, I'm, I'm a big supporter in that movement. Those are serious allegations, but I don't think this was the right forum for it. It felt like it was being misused and being a victim of abuse is not a get out of jail free card. Yeah, yeah. The, the, it, it'll be interesting to to see how this plays out, especially when it comes to sentencing, uh, when it comes to, 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 to that. But we'll touch on that a little bit later. I, I, I want to drill in on this uh, this fact and. Marissa, uh, both you and David have been on the fundraising trail. Uh, Marissa, you've, you've been on it from a nonprofit standpoint. David, you've been on it with venture capital and trying to raise money for, for, for Babson. I, I want to talk to both of you now about how important is it to have that rapport with potential investors to avoid a Theranos-like scenario, especially in this day and age where due diligence is done uh, over a Zoom meeting now. Um, uh, David, can you tackle that first? Can can you talk a little bit about that? And, and maybe, yeah, could you jump on that? Yeah. Sure. I mean, I'll, I'll talk about it a little bit before I talk about Babson, because I think learning about what we do at Babson gives you a, some context. But um, we leaned into it. And, and you'll learn we're, we're a science-first company with values of integrity, and several others that are critical being in healthcare. So we leaned into it with our data. So we always led with data. We always led with, with transparency. Um, even during COVID and precautions, we had potential investors 
at our headquarters in Austin, experiencing our service firsthand, uh, participating in clinical studies. We've had the tremendous opportunity to continue our clinical studies during COVID. So our approach has always been science first, data transparency, and leaning into any of those questions. We have the benefit of, you'll learn, um, you know, the backing of some of the, and the partnership of two of the most leading uh, and most innovative med tech companies in the world. But, you know, the benefit we have is being a science first company, we lean into it. Even with that, you can imagine the hurdle you have to go, you know, you have to jump over to prove because there's always going to be skepticism. Um, you know, again, we, we both our personal credibility of the founder, Eric Olson and myself and our strategic partners and our actual clinical data. But I think there's a lot less trust of what could be in the future and a lot more need from venture capitalists and others to see actual data and actual proof that your solution is real and it works. Now, Marissa, you're on the other end of this, um, the, the, the nonprofit side. Talk about that trust. Uh, talk about that when, when you're looking to, to uh, fundraise for her healthy cube. Yeah, absolutely. So definitely on the on the nonprofit side, but also, I mean, I do a lot of work with for-profit companies as well. And, you know, report. Well, you're, well, you're so, a Jane of all trades. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I try. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Got to make a living. But, yeah. um, you know, it, it's really important to have rapport with the investors. And that it's really, that's what most of them want kind of more than anything. And, and a lot of investors talk about fit. Know, fit within their culture and being able to work with the teams and being able to understand the information. And, you know, investors want people they can work with. And from what I hear, and again, never met her, so I have no idea. Um, she was completely one way with investors, like very charming and cocktail hours, bombarding them with great news, and then completely different um, with her employees, rude, secretive, harsh, you know, all of those things. And so, she had this great rapport with investors. She didn't have great rapport with people um, internally. And what investors want more than rapport is is the truth. And so obviously David can speak for sure about that and, and understand it, especially as a for-profit company. But just regardless, investors, donors, anybody wants the truth. And the other side of this is that investors, most of the time, are more than just a hands-off blank check. Um, a lot of them are problem solvers and they want you to succeed. I mean, that's after all, like how they're going to be the most profitable and successful. And, you know, she went, if she went to her investors and swallowed her ridiculously huge ego and her pride and she asked for help or advice or guidance, she she might not have been, she might, listen, she might still be in trouble, but she probably wouldn't have been in this much trouble and I mean, the thing that bothers me the most and why I guess I jumped on saying, you know, in the beginning, like, oh, my God, she's guilty. You know, the fact of the matter is that she's a woman. And it really, really hurt and set back all women who are raising capital, especially in healthcare. You know, we already know how ridiculously hard it is to raise capital as a woman. And the fact that she did this to us, to the industry, really set us back. And it's it's such a shame. Um, it's really sad to think that investors are so skittish about women in general and that like this one bad apple really kind of ruins the entire bunch. And people continue to ask like, so, so why are you 
not Theranos or why are you not? Um, because it's a completely different business. I'm a completely different person. Most people are not, uh, you know, maniacal in that way. And so, so I think it's just, it hurt women, women who are looking for capital and, and it really just, it hurt us so badly. The fact that, that she was a woman um, and that she wasn't truthful with investors, because at this point, investors need no extra reason not to invest in women. Well, let me that, that brings an interesting uh, question up. Let me ask you this. Do you is it fair to say that maybe because of the Theranos case that the bar is a little bit higher for um, for for females now or for women now to to get that support? Um, from investors and in venture capitalists? Is the bar a, a little bit higher or are you not taking it as seriously? And, and, you know, you and I have also had these conversations about how this is a male-dominated industry and, and that puts a little bit more pressure on it. Um, do you think that things have changed? Do you think it's a little bit harder for you all now after Theranos? Listen, it couldn't have gotten much harder anyway. So I don't think it's I don't think it's any harder as a result of Theranos. I mean, if you're in certain industries, probably you have to prove yourself that you're not Theranos, I would say. But like things went well. Imagine how that would have helped women who were seeking capital and Uh women founded companies and women led companies like it, it didn't. You know, there was no hire to make it harder. It was already the hardest it could possibly be. I just think it uh, it didn't help the situation. Good point. Good point. And and speaking of not being Theranos, David, I want to bring you back into the conversation and I want to talk about Babson a little bit yep. and some of the hurdles that y- you might face. First of all, talk about Babson. Just just tell us what you're all about. Sure. Um, you know, I think when we the Babson started from the realization that diagnostic blood testing hasn't changed in largely 70 years, um, the way it's done, how can, how inconvenient it is, how inaccessible it is, that we still primarily use needles in people's veins. And the thing was, could you truly do, the one thing we do sh- share with Theranos is the, the desire to bring accessibility and convenience to diagnostic blood testing. And that's really where the parallels end. Um, th- that is needed because 70% of clinical decisions are powered by the the tests that lab diagnostics perform. We also are during COVID how critical, um, accessible and convenient diagnostic testing is, but very few people like to get it done or consider it again, you know, uh, accessible nor convenient. And we said, could we truly do the large panels of the most frequently ordered tests? So what your doctor would order you for your routine blood screen, or if you're, if you're, treating diseases um, from easy to collect samples. Just like everything else in our economy has, you know, moved towards transactions where very quickly you can get something done in accessible locations, conveniently, with tremendous transparency on the quality and cost and, and everything like that. Why can't something like broad diagnostic blood testing also be brought into the modern transaction? With them? So, um, from day one, we, we started this when, when when Eric and I were still part of Siemens, and we said, could you do this with a science-first approach? Could you do this truly without uh, any cheat steps, without any kludges, um, 
do it at a level of, of quality and of um, transparency that we'd have our loved ones tested on it. And that is always our bar. So we had to reimagine the end and blood testing process um, and say, again, how could you reimagine it so you could walk into a place like a retail pharmacy, quickly have a pharmacy tech collect your sample, ensure the, the chain of custody of that sample from collection all the way to processing, and then have large menu breadth and, and large um, scale without sacrificing the quality nor the cost structure. And that was always in the past kind of the balloon you pushed on. If you wanted something done at accessible locations, it was higher higher cost in a smaller menu and less information. If you wanted broader testing, you had to go to uh, patient service centers and get phlebotomy done and get, get a venipuncture. And what we have today is truly the first company ever to show the ability to do large panels. So the most regular tests like the composite metabolic panel and the complete blood count and lipids and thyroids via samples easily collected at retail locations. Um, what's really cool is we're, we're almost daily at retail locations doing our clinical studies and both our clinical studies and our customer preference studies suggest, since we're not approved yet, suggest we're on, on the path to really bring this accessibility and convenience to routine blood testing. Um, and all along the way, we've been in the field. The reason why we're doing clinical studies daily, the reason why um, over, over the course of the last year and a half, we've probably done 100,000 tests in support of clinical studies is, again, as a science-first company with integrity, we always want to test our solutions in real-life situations, always generate data with real people, always challenge it um, to the harshest conditions so that when we move towards approval and move towards regulatory approval, we're, we're confident in our solution. I recall when Amanda first pitched um, uh, the story, she said, uh, you know, I'm interviewing uh, the CEO of Babson and, uh, you know, Babson is going to succeed where, um, Theranos didn't. And immediately when I heard Theranos, I was like, oh boy, here we go. <laughs> you, you know, it, it just had such a bad connotation because in the industry, uh, the ones that have been reporting all this, we've seen Theranos' rise and fall and anything associated with it is is just, um, you know, it, it, it's almost, you almost shoot it down automatically. And so when I initially heard about Babson. I, you know, because of the Theranos um, uh, story, I was I was skittish about it. I, I'm wondering, do you run into those comparisons? Do those comparisons work against you when you're trying to court VC firms? When you're trying to get that support? Uh, I mean, definitely. And, yeah. and I think you know, I, I think I wrote an op-ed piece not too long ago that there is a, also a silver lining, right? Yeah which is, it starts with, there is not, in my mind, there is not a minimal viable product in healthcare. We're dealing with people's lives. And we as, as people in, in healthcare and healthcare technology need to remember that, right? That any solution we did, it, it has a direct effect on people's lives. And when people bring up the comparison with Theranos, I lean into it and we lean into it. And what I mean by that is discuss the lineage that both Eric Olson and myself have as, as leaders of the company, um, 
the the proven track record we have in innovation and bringing new solutions to market. And then our, our two key strategic partners of Siemens Health Veneers and Becton Dickinson, which is very public. Um, you know, we're having two of the the biggest and most innovative medtech company in the world as key strategic partners, and how that gives us a foundation, but also holds us to a very high level. A scientific advisory board, who's the who's who of diagnostics, who wouldn't be on a scientific advisory board unless, unless they, they, they're they constantly shown a level of quality and rigor that goes into what we do. And, and, and then um, leaning in with the data. And what I mean by that is even, you know, it, it's not uncommon for people, if they have questions, to come and participate in a clinical study. You know, it's all anonymized, all done under IRB review. But that being able to look at their results in the Babson ecosystem compared to if you went and you sent a sample to a third party. So we lean into the ultimate challenges, which is if you have any questions about how it's done, we're fully transparent. And with that full transparency and data clarity, um, we're able to dispel any of the myths. Because nobody debates that people want accessibility and choice. It's how can you do it? And what's fundamentally different about the way that Babson did it is we didn't try to piece together solutions. We didn't try to take off-the-shelf uh, solutions and, and chain them together. We reimagined this end-to-end and said, how could you ensure with our partner, Beckton Dickinson, that we're collecting a very high-quality sample from somebody's finger? How can we automate all the pre-analytics? Because what you see done when you get blood tested is only about half. There's centrifugation, there's mixing, there's chilling, there's... How can we automate that so that in a retail transactional setting, nobody has to worry about it? And then how do we, in our in our highly automated microsample labs, how do we minimize the, the blood needed so that we maximize clinical utility of the serum and do all that without things such as diluting the blood and, and cheat steps? How do we do it using industry standard methods so that our quality end should be equivalent or equivalent, we'll say, to what's done today. So again, you're not making any sacrifices because you're now unlocking this accessibility and convenience. And again, we lean, lean into it by from day one showing you results, being very transparent about how we do it. Um, but as you can imagine, you know, people, there it, it is a cautionary tale for many people. And just like a lot of first generation iPhones and iPads and other things weren't successful, um, sometimes it takes, when you're trying to do something as big as we're doing, you know, it, it takes somebody who has thought about it a long time, tried to reimagine end to end and brought some science first credibility to it to finally achieve it. Of course, of course. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you have to break a, a few eggs first before you can can get that omelet. Um, I want to switch our conversation now and talk about the mystique of of Holmes. Why do you think she stands out so much? Um, why do you think her story is so compelling? Uh, Marissa, what are your thoughts on this? And, and I bring you into this conversation because uh, I bring you into the conversation at this point, because I remember when you were telling me about how her health EQ was formed and your ideas behind it. It was such a great, quote unquote, origin story of, of how it came up. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and then lead into the mystique of of, of Elizabeth Holmes, like why is she so interesting to us? Yeah, I mean, you must be referring to the fact that the idea for this started in, or for her LPQ started in a bar. So uh, <laughs> a global nonprofit helping women's health started in a bar. But, you know, at, 
that's where all the conversations and ideas come from. But yeah. I mean, you know, it started it started in in Costa Rica when I was living there, working there, you know, with a medical device company. And uh, I just I saw I saw the need and I saw the gap and I saw the I actually saw the solution um, and and then have been working for the last few years to, to kind of make this a reality and and help uh, women's health, women's health improve throughout the world. And and grateful, grateful for my conversations at a bar. I'm sure I would have gotten there eventually, but it just happened. <laughs> it yeah. happened be there uh, makes me sound like an alcoholic certainly not but uh you know that's uh that's what a good friday night is for um and uh, you know i think back to elizabeth holmes like the 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 allure of her is she's a woman period end of sentence if this happened to a man um she would not be getting this media attention it's, it's literally like a circus around her you know if if a woman didn't do this and I don't know why there's this naivete that, you know, women are going to do the right thing and that they're inherently good, which, uh, of course, as a woman and all women, uh, I mean, generally, that's true. But listen, there's like in any gender, um, there's going to be some not great people. And, you know, the fact that she wasn't uh, traditional, you know, um, and like even, you know, even in this era, she wasn't con considered traditional. Um, and there's so many people who kind of put women in buckets and she wasn't in that bucket and she stood out and like that's what was very appealing as well um it's also you know she was she was this image of a woman that not a lot of people have seen in silicon valley and she created a character out of this um and she had appeal to men um, but not many women, you'll, you'll probably, you know, like throughout the trial, um, a lot of people saw, like she had appeal to, to men and exactly what Amanda said, like the fact that she's using this kind of me too, um, claim and then against, you know, that, 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 that's what she was kind of clinging onto. I mean, it's incredibly disrespectful. Um, and, and that's not who, how she portrayed herself. Um, you know, she, she, she was creating a character and she created this female Steve, Stephen Jobs. And, and it was really, it was, it was eaten up by, by the media and it was something to talk about and to focus on and glorify and, and eventually vilify. Um, she, you know, she, she played this part to get more money. Um, she played the part for more appeal and more investors and media spots and, um, and probably to hide what, what wasn't going right and what she wasn't achieving. And um, like her persona became, it became about the persona and less about the person. So, um, you know, you'll notice now, like in, in the media trial, she's not wearing that same outfit, you know, cause that persona no longer exists. And she, she created it to, to kind of hide what she was doing and, and she knew what she was doing. And um, a lot of people love saying like, Oh, here's Elizabeth, you know, showing up in the same black turtleneck and, you know, same haircut and same everything. And, you know, um, thinking that she was going to have the same success as Stephen Jobs. And listen, everyone has to remember most companies, unfortunately, fail. And the fact that she was trying to image herself like Steve Jobs, who had great success, also failed early in his career. Mm -hmm. And so... Like, 
she was just trying to grab onto this persona. And and it was, you know, listen, it's alluring. It's something for people to focus on. It's something for people to talk about. And so uh, that's personally why I think she has, uh, you know, uh, she had some appeal and why people grabbed onto it. But the the biggest point, honestly, is because she was a woman. If a man did this, like, this would not be the media circus it is. Amanda, I want to bring you into the conversation to 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 pair it off of that. Um, do do you share these thoughts, or you you know what are, what is your take on um, Elizabeth Holmes' appeal? Why was she so popular? And was it the deep voice? Was it the the non blinking or the turtlenecks, the attire? What do you think? Why do you think we're talking about her today? Why isn't this any other trial? Why why did this trial reach the magnitude that it did and her her staying power or her star power reach that high? Well, first of all, 100 percent, I agree with everything that Marissa has said and uh, many of the points that David um, mentioned earlier as well. Um, I, I but as for the answer to that question, uh, what is it about Elizabeth Holmes? There's just something about Elizabeth Holmes, you know, <laughs> like um, and personally for me, it's uh it really is um, mystifying to me because I've never really understood that level of fandom over anything. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I I like Star Wars, but I'm not like a Star Wars, you know, I'm not a Star Wars fan fan person necessarily. Um, so when I saw photos of women showing up to the trial in essentially cosplay outfits, blonde wigs, or, you know, if they needed, a, some of them were naturally blonde, it looked like, but, you know, basically cosplay, uh, you know, showing up in the, in the black, trying to look like the, the Elizabeth Holmes as we knew her, um, not during the trial, but the Elizabeth Holmes that we knew um, during the rise, during the glory days of Theranos. And, um, and then, uh, you know, later I saw a picture uh, on social media, someone was trying to sell blonde wigs and black turtlenecks out of a suitcase in front of the federal building in San Jose. I mean, that's crazy. And all of this, while Holmes's now father-in-law is wandering around in disguise, trying to put pass himself off as a concerned citizen and influence journalists who are there to report on on the trial um so i mean that that right there just i have to say it tells you everything you need to know about about the type of person she is and the type of you know family and and, and people she associates with Um, It was surreal. It was surreal. And I don't know. I I really don't know. I'm still asking myself to this day uh, what exactly the draw is. Um, But I will give her credit where credit is due. I think that a lot can be said about the importance of public image and personal branding. And Elizabeth Holmes understood that very well and did it very well. For better or for worse. Well, yeah, yeah, and and she had a lot of support through um, throughout her career as a med tech executive. And what is so amazing to me, and, and Marissa brought up this point, she was a character. She was a character. 
uh, I, I don't think we saw the real Elizabeth Holmes. You know, I, I don't think we saw who she really was. Um, what we saw was the image of the young woman who was determined to make it in Silicon Valley um, by any means necessary. And, uh, you know, she had all these quirks that really, really, you paid more attention to the quirks than you did to the science or to the technology. And let's not forget, she had some pretty big contracts. Um, she was working with um, uh, Walgreens, uh, if I'm not uh, mistaken. She had a huge contract uh, uh, with that uh, that organization. And, you know, that's not something that anybody can get walking off the street. She was able to pitch and to sell herself and her idea. And she had some strong investors. Uh, and look at the people that served on her board. Uh, it, it, it's just incredible to to see how one person could get that much influence. And I'm always, always blown away uh, by that. I mean, David, I, I'm sure you. Yeah, I mean, I was going to comment. Yeah. I mean, I what I don't, what I don't want to lose sight of, who I think are the, you know, the real, you'd say, victims here. I mean, we can talk yeah. about patients, but the real victims are two things. One is us as the general public, because everybody wants choice, exactly, and, and we we want medical innovation that makes our life better. So that was a huge opportunity with something as critical as diagnostic blood testing. When done right, as we're trying to do a Babson, it will have a huge impact on people's lives. I think the the second part which Marissa brought up is I have three daughters and my 12 year old is very into science and engineering. She wants to be an engineer. I'd love to have more role models for her. Right. It could have been a great tale. It could have been a Steve Jobs story. Right. Um, and I, I don't want to lose sight of that, that, you know. My my biggest that, that's my biggest regret is one as. as somebody in healthcare that we don't have another choice, that we didn't move, that healthcare wasn't moved forward when they potentially had an opportunity to do that. And the second is it casts, a, you know, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a black mark instead of a, a bright, you know, great sign for my daughters on, on what they could achieve and what, when they're moving forward. So I think to me, that's the, that is the, the true victims here, right? And, and, and the true sad part of the story. We could talk about her as a person. None yeah. of us really know what's going through her head. What I could just say is the, the broader impact, again, I think that, that Marissa brought up before is what I'm really upset about. Amanda, you look like you wanted to say something or you wanted to join. <laughs> yeah, you know me so well. You can <laughs> see when I'm like uh, clicking my mute button and my unmute button. Um, you know, I just wanted to say because David made some really good points um, and I just wanted, you know, it's important that we don't lose sight of a couple things. One is what Theranos, not, you know, Elizabeth uh, Holmes uh, and Theranos did that was very good for the industry is that she proved an unmet need. Um, there was so much interest in Theranos and the technology in part because what David has said and what Babson is trying to do, um, it, there absolutely is a need for that. There is a desire for that. That is, a, a, you know, um, Babson is trying to democratize diagnostic testing and improve access to care. And one thing that really um, kind of uh, resonated with me when I interviewed you, David, um, uh, gosh, when was that? Uh, back in 
um, I think probably a year ago at least. Um, but when I first spoke with you, um, you told me that this was not just a business for you. It, it was something you're passionate about. And that really resonated. That's, you know, came across as very genuine. Um, and you said, because, you know, you pointed out that you yourself, you know, will be a consumer of this sooner or later. Um, you know, so will, you know, we all will be. Um, it, it'll be, you know, something where uh, you'll want your kids to, to be treated or tested or a loved one. Um, so, you know, you said that from day one, you took a scientific approach and, um, you know, broke the problem down to where there was no cheat steps. There was no black box or, or yeah. cheat steps. No, I mean, it, again, as I said, my line is that a loved one gets tested on it. Um, I mean, share something personal. Somebody very close to me was recently diagnosed with cancer and it was off a blood test. And, you know, what I, for me, it's all about how do we have one more conversation? Yeah. So it might sound a little morbid, but how do we increase people's health span so that we can truly have one more conversation with a loved one? So that the, the time we have with people is, is happier and more valuable. And that, um, we're catching disease early or driving health earlier. And, um, you know, it, it's funny in, in healthcare, in, in almost any in the world, I, I could ask you, like, how much did you have in your bank account 10 years ago? You could probably figure it out. You yeah. could say, did you ever bounce a check in your whole life? A bank could probably figure that out. If I asked you, what was your last blood test result? You probably don't have them handy, even though they're that important, right? It's easier to find your credit rating than your your blood test results. And we have to fix that because, you know, in the end of the day, our health is the only thing that really matters in the end. Time is the ultimate currency and health is a lot of how we measure our time. Well put, well said. And I, I think that's what really this is all about. It's looking at, you know, we can we can talk about Theranos, we can talk about Elizabeth Holmes, and we talk and we can talk about what happened. But ultimately, it, it, it's about the charge to to provide health care, to, to provide innovation, innovation that will make a difference. And that's an opportunity that you shouldn't squander. Um, I'm David uh, Babson has been uh, pretty good at, at what you're doing. You're trying to change the paradigm. Uh, Marissa and her health EQ um, have been, you know, that organization has been doing awesome work and incredible work for women across the globe. And you're in positions where you can make a difference. You can change things because, uh, you know, we can talk about anything else, but your health is, is one of the most, if not the most important thing in your life, because it's going to impact how you are around others. Um, how you're able to live your life on a daily basis and how long you will live. Uh, so it, it's just amazing. I, I see your roles and I see the people's roles in healthcare now is just being it, it's it's a privilege and it's an honor. And it's sad that we have some people that squander that role or, or, or that importance. Um, I want to now take a look ahead because this isn't over yet. We still have Ramesh Sunny Balwani's trial coming up and it's being tried as well on some of the same uh, charges. I, I want to talk. I want to get your thoughts on this. And um, I also want to to 
talk about Holmes, do we think she'll get much time during her sentencing? But first, um, let's talk about Ramesh uh, Bawani. Um, thoughts? Anybody? This open forum now. Wasn't as much of a spectacle as she was. So I'm, you know, people are going to pay attention, yeah. but I am not sure they're going to pay attention, you know, because she was a face. She was a face of it. And only, I mean, a lot of people who were paying attention to Theranos knew who he was, but, um, and, and also as a result of the trial, I think people are wondering whether anything that happened in her trial are going, it's going to be brought up in, you know, his trial, um, which I don't, I'm not, a, again, not a lawyer, not sure. I don't even think that's legally sound, so not sure. But um, I, I just, I'm not sure everyone's going to pay as much attention to him, unfortunately, as um, as they did to her. Yeah, yeah. And we should mention that um, Ramesh Sunny Balwani was the former president and COO of Theranos. So just wanted to, to add that in. Uh, Amanda, your thoughts on this? Um, what do you think about uh, the trial coming up whenever it happens? I think it's supposed to happen in March. Yeah, you know, um, I have to agree with Marissa. I don't think it's going to draw as much interest. I mean, there were people, I just had the impression when uh, Elizabeth Holmes's trial first started that people were literally I can't eat popcorn, but I kind of wished I could because I really literally wanted to be like sitting on my couch eating popcorn and scrolling through my t Twitter feeds and the, um, you know, listening to the podcasts. Um, I don't think we're going to see that with Sonny. He just it, he, it just was it, he wasn't um, not to say that he didn't have responsibility, certainly, but. Um, he wasn't the face, like Marissa, Marissa said. He just he wasn't the face of the company in the way that Elizabeth was. He wasn't the character character um, that in the way that she had built a character around herself in that um, public image. Uh, he he didn't do that. He was more in the background. So I don't know. But I, as far as sentencing, um, I just. I really do. Uh, I, I really do hope that. Um, she is held accountable um, because I, I think it's very important and would be very detrimental to the industry if she's if the public perceives that she's not held accountable for the charges that she was found guilty of. Not even talking about the charges that she was not found, you know, found not guilty of, but just yeah. just focusing on the, the guilty charges. I think she has to be held, held accountable for those or it's it's going to be a, a bad look for the industry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, quick question for y'all. Do we think that the fake it until you make it philosophy, is, is that over? Is that phase over? Um, or did it ever truly exist? I mean, my hope is in healthcare, it, it, it's truly over. Because um, we have choice with apps on our phone, whether we use them or not. Yeah. With, you know, there is an innate trust that if a product is used in the support of somebody's health, that they can rely on it. Because for the vast majority of people, it's hard to it's hard for them to be able to determine the quality, efficacy, and other things, and they rely on the medical community to do that. So, I think I said before, um, I believe there is no minimal viable product in in healthcare, and 
my strong hope is that it's okay to do a lot of research. It's okay to drive innovation. It's okay to 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 not achieve something, but it's not okay when when it's in support of somebody's health and it's used clinically. Marissa, fake it until you make it. Is that out of the door right now, or? Um, I agree with David. I I think for healthcare, there should never be fake it until you make it. It should be prove it and you make it. Um, and but you know, as far as the persona goes, I mean, listen, like you got to build up your persona so you fake it till you make it. I mean, that's just part of building up a a media profile. So that's what she did. But in healthcare, absolutely not. Like you cannot fake it until you make it. Like this is these are people's lives. Um, this is it is way too important. It's not you know. We're not we're not talking about a TV show. We're talking about physical people's lives. Can't fake it. Exactly. Exactly. Um, David, want to ask you now, what can we look forward to uh, in 2022 for for Babson and Marissa? I'll ask you the same thing uh, for her healthy EQ. Great. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're continuing our development. We're, we're steaming towards and continuing to do our clinical studies in support of our launch. Um, you'll see more and more transparency for us and exactly how we're doing it um, and, and hopefully some announcements of commercialization partners. Um, but my thing also is we'll make sure it's right before we show it to the public and before we um, pursue for, for you know full commercialization. But you'll definitely see a lot more communication from Babson in the coming year and a lot more um, discussion of exactly how we're doing our solution and exactly what consumers should expect. Marissa, Her Health EQ, what have we got lined up? Uh, yeah, Her Health EQ, uh, we are in the middle of our launch of our very large program for breast cancer detection in India. So two sites launched, 28 to go. So we're, we're, we're working on that and looking for partners as well to help uh, move that forward. Also working on a really big cervical cancer um, program throughout the world, Latin America and Africa with one of our partners um, that's going to impact almost half a million women per year. So, um, so it's really, really exciting times for us. And so we're just, we're looking to grow and uh, we're at the point uh, that we're doing it right now. Amazing, amazing. And I look forward to, to reporting on those stories and to talking to you uh, in the future about this. Well, thank you all. Thank you, David. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you, Marissa, for coming out. This has been an incredible conversation. Um, I hope to have you back on Let's Talk MedTech soon. Can't wait. Thanks for having Thank us. You. It's wonderful. Yeah. Thanks, Omar. Bye. Thank awesome. you. Take care, all. Bye-bye. That was such an incredible panel, and that was a mind-blowing conversation. David, Amanda, Marissa, thanks once again. I know I've already stated it a couple of times, but thanks once again for coming on and doing the episode. Um, hey, if you all love this and you want to see or hear more content related to medical devices in the medtech industry, you can check us out at mddionline.com. It's your one-stop shop for everything that's medtech and diagnostic related. You know, we have all the regulatory news. We have all the news about big deals or acquisitions, financings, it just runs the gamut. Um, even the key opinion leaders, uh, the movers and shakers in the industry, tips on professional tips for engineers in the industry. It's it's such an incredible, uh, incredible resource. And you can find all of that content on MDDI 
mddionline.com. That's mddionline.com. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is about all the time we have today. But thanks once again for taking the time to listen to Let's Talk MedTech.